take a breath of fresh air, look at something different, particularly to look at the Psalms because I find the Psalms are wonderfully challenging to me, is that they're not straightly ordered sometimes. They're not exactly in a line like I would like them to be. And I have a certain note sheet and I have a certain approach to study. And sometimes in the Psalms, it's just like all of that blows up and here we are studying something completely different than what I could have imagined, but it's somehow it is sweeter. And I submit to you that the Psalms just should be that way in our lives. Last week, particularly, we were looking at how that in Adam, we're all dead. In Adam, we have all died, but in Christ, we're made alive. And how that especially at the end of Psalm 16, David was particularly reflecting on the realities of the resurrection, that his Lord, Jesus Christ, was going to be resurrected. In Acts chapter 2, Peter took up the psalm, and he began to expound upon it the same way that we seek to do each and every week, communicating that this was Jesus who came. But even King David knew that his hope was ultimately in there. I've often wondered, even as we talked about last week, is did King David realize everything that he was writing? Did he realize all of the impact of it? I'm sure he knew something was up. I'm sure he had some idea of it. But it's just a wonderful blessing, the fact that not everything had been revealed to King David just yet. And yet he knew things that were unfathomable. It strikes me as how in our walk with Christ, there are some times that God has allowed us to come to know something. God has given us a special blessing, a special gift. And when we look back to it from years ago, we find how rich that it was. We knew that it was rich in its season, but how that when we've gone a little bit further down the road, sometimes it's something that we cling to even more preciously. And it ought to be that way for precious is the word of God. I want to say thank you for continuing to read through the book of Galatians as we have been. Uh, we have a new goal last week that we set to hit 2,000 because we've already crushed 1,000. I think we are at, are we at 1,600 or so this week? I think we are already at the 1,600 mark, probably closing in on 1,700. Uh, so we're probably going to wind up having to push back the goal again. So I just want to say thank you to your faithfulness for being washed by the water of the Word of God. Uh, this is not to show off. This is not to tell in any way, but this is simply to be washed by the water of the Word of God. But this morning, we find ourselves in Psalm 17 this morning. Let us read it before we begin, as we made an error last week and did not do so. So let us read it in its fullness this week. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear the right, O Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer. That goeth not out of feigned lips. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Shew thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand, them which put their trust in thee, from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings, from the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who can pass me about. They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. 
like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword, from men which are thy hand. O Lord, from men of the world which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy treasure, hid treasure. They are full of children and leave rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I, will, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful occasion just to gather to sing a few hymns, to read a few psalms, Father, to look into this particular psalm and seek that you would expound it unto us. We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, and our ears, everything about us, that, Father, we would be receptive of this psalm. We pray that the Spirit would then take these things and confirm them within us, God, so these truths in our hearts that they may bring forth the due fruit in its due season of God. Lord, we pray that you would be with us here road. Give us ever the direction you would have us to go, whatever needs to happen pray that it would happen in accordance with your will and your way. Father, we pray that you feed your lambs and feed your sheep, getting all the honor and glory to your high and holy name. We pray it all in thy Son, Jesus Christ, most holy and wonderful name. Amen and amen. This morning again, or I guess from last week as we talked about and have already mentioned this morning, is that sometimes they just like a certain structure, the Psalms do. And uh, in my Western mind, I want everything to be point A, point B, point C, point D, and I just want to go through the whole alphabet and everything make perfect sense. And sometimes in the Psalms, it just does not. So in my feeble mind, I turn to Charles Spurgeon sometimes in the Psalms and say, what does old Spurge have to say about this one? And uh, I find that even Spurgeon noted that there's not a real structure to this sometimes. And I'm like, well, if Spurgeon can't find it, we sure are in trouble because of all these things. Beloved, sometimes these Psalms are meant to make us struggle. Sometimes songs ought to make us struggle to understand what the lyrics are mean and the idea that it is communicated because it is something that is supposed to be beholding our attention. It is supposed to be something that is captivating us and making us study. And I submit to you that verses 1 through 13 are that way, that they're pretty direct. And I, I enjoy going through verses 1 through 13, but by the time we get down to 14 and 15, I'm left a little bit confused about some things because of the way that he handles some things. But in doing that, I notice there does seem to be a little bit of a structure here that David deals with the righteous to begin with. And then, he, or he is speaking of the righteous, and then he is speaking of the wicked, and then the wicked are dealt with, and then the righteous are dealt with. So in a certain fashion of understanding that, that poems and certain things can be listed in different ways, and A, B, A, B, or A, C, D, or A, B, C, and then A, B, C, this one seems to have somewhat of a pattern of A, B, B, A. Just looking at the pattern of it, he deals with the righteous, he deals with the wicked, and then the wicked, and then the righteous is the way that this seems to be broken down. So there's a little bit of a way that King David seems to be praying even unto God. And as it's a recorded prayer, he's wanting us to understand sometimes this may be one of the ways that we pray. I submit to you that there's a multitude of different ways to pray. One of my favorites is Acts. If you've never heard of the Acts model of prayer, of where you adore God first, and then you confess unto God your sins, and then you give thanks unto him, and then supplication as the letter S, and you begin to pray for others. You pray for yourself. You pray for others. That's the Acts model of prayer. There's a few others that are out there, but this may also be one of the ways is perhaps you need to be with King David and praying for yourself first. 
But the way that King David is not a prayer of confession over here. The way of King David is praying unto God, and David is saying some odd things. First of all, we know King David is not a perfect man. We know that King David has had plenty of sin in his life. There is no doubt of that. And yet here we have ourselves in Psalm 17, a prayer of David. And he says, hear the right. King David is automatically approaching God with the reality that he is in the right. Sometimes, beloved, perhaps you actually are living in the right. We talk about the need of confession. We talk about the need of being broken before God. And all of these things are true. But, beloved, it ought to be that every now and then you go to God and you've actually been living in the right. It ought to be that you look unto God knowing that you're coming before him in the same sense. If this is a prayer of David, if this is included in the word of God, then perhaps somewhere, some way, our lives should be modeling the same truth. That we're able to come unto God and say, Hear the right of the Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. Lest we begin to look at King David and assume that he is being haughty in his prayer. Notice that his prayer is still dependent on God. Even though he is talking about that he's in the right condition. And even though he's talking about unfeigned lips, un, unperverted lips, un, un, unmixed lips as it were. As it says in that word unfeigned lips. Even though King David is giving these accolades in a certain sense about himself, it is still rooted in the dependence of God. It is still rooted. The problem that I've heard sometimes in my life, just going about day to day with other people that claim to be Christians, is they would claim to be in the right, but you would listen to them, and their approach was never dependency on God. Their approach was a dependency on themselves. They said, I am in the right, and I am this, and I am that. It amazes me. King David knows he's in the right about these things, and yet he is still profoundly dependent on God. Our lives ought to at some point be lining up with the truth of verse 1 here. Is that yes, we are living rightly for God. And yes, we are still dependent on him. What a unique blessing it is that King David is teaching us how to pray. He says in verse 2, let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. He knows that he's under the rule and under the authority of God himself. He knows that his sentence comes from God. He knows that his, his assignments, everything about King David's life ultimately should be emerging from God himself because David knows that he belongs to God. David is king over Israel. David has all of these accolades about him, all of the power, all of the might, and yet he is acknowledging he belongs to God and that God can have his will and his way. I wonder, do you ever pray and just saying, God, I don't know what's next, but I know it's up to you. You ever just find yourselves in those moments to where you're exasperated, you're defeated, you're whatever, and yet somehow God has given you the confidence that you belong to me, and I'm going to use you according to my purpose and my plan. It's not about you. It's about me if God is responding to you in that sense. And I submit to you that it should be that way. That it should be in the multitude of our prayers that we just look to God depending on him and saying, God, whatever you want, whatever your will is, whatever your way is, despite it making zero sense to any of us. Because King David continues on. King David's got some problems. He says in verse 3, Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. Can it be said of any of us that he can find nothing wrong with us? Is there any part of our lives that we're able to pray unto God and say, God, you're not going to be able to find anything wrong in me. And yet that's what King David is praying. One of a couple of things could be happening here. King David's just wrong. That could be true, couldn't it? 
King David could just be wrong. But then why is it included in the infallible and errant word of God? We understand the Bible to be these things. King David is not wrong for these things. Somehow King David is able to pray, pray this prayer. Now, we know the life of David, so we know he's not been able to pray this every day of his life. But we know that in this moment, King David is praying these things because these things are true about him. He says, I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. King David is acknowledging that this is not accidental. He's looking at this saying, I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Do every one of you know cuss words? Every one of you do. I, I submit to you, I'm looking at the audience, and I know that every one of you know these words. Do you know that if you're not going to use such language, you're going to have to purpose because the language of the culture and every environment that you find yourselves in is we use those words without a bell. Some people have been in the military. Others have been in military colleges. It just seems like that's the flow of the language is to use those in schools and everything else. It seems to be the flow of the language. that Everybody is willing to use words that we as believers in Christ, we know something is wrong with the way that we approach those words. We know that when we are using those words, something is not right. It always kind of just, I used to laugh at it, but now it just it hurts to see it as how it always seemed to be, and I'm not picking on any ladies, but I always seemed to be the little old church ladies, that they would be outside of church, and they would kind of giggle, and they'd say one of those words that we all, we all knew they all thought to be saying. We knew that it all thought to be saying, that they'd have a little giggle about it. And it never ceases to amaze me that that's how we approach sin, is with a little bit of a giggle. We let in this small sin. I'm just using that as a particular example because it's, a, it's an experience that it separates us from the rest of the world when we don't use that language. I know those words come from different things, but we choose not to use those languages. We know that that language is mixed with the rest of the world and that it has no purpose in the part of our language. It's something that we need to be abstaining from. And if we are going to, you're going to have to purpose that your mouth shall not transgress. I just got to thinking about it. It's been over a decade since I had a soft drink. It's not that I never want one. It's not that I have, it, it, that I would never like one. I see Tara every now and then, and she'll order one. I thought, man, that sure does look good. She got one yesterday, and everything just about it just looked so good. But I didn't want it at the end of the day. It looked good, but I no longer had the desire for it. It was weird seeing that situation in my life and going to that. Beloved, that's what happens in our lives when we purpose and intentionally live to not sin. When we purposely live so as not to transgress and to so purposely live that our mouth shall not transgress, our lives shall not transgress, it is an intentional living that we must have. In verse 4, it says, Concerning the works of men by the word of thy lips... I have kept me from the paths of the destroyers. The way that King David has been able to do this is the same thing that he's been communicating from Psalm 1 and 2, is that his word, the word of God, the law of God is a delight unto him. It is a light unto his feet and a lamp unto his path. It is all of these different things under King David. He knows that the only way that he is able to keep from the works of the rest of the men and from the ways and the paths of the destroyer is by the word of God that keeps him. If it was to keep David... And if it kept Jesus, look in Matthew chapter 4 that when Jesus was tempted by Satan over there, he continually said, do you not know? It is written. It is written this. And that was the life and ministry of Jesus. He kept saying to the Pharisees and to everybody else when he was tempted, he said, have you not read? Do you not know? He was always rooting and grounding himself in the word of God. Perhaps that's what we see, that King David was praying these things. So I'm, I'm taking it that it was true about King David, at least when he was praying the psalm, it was true about him. But I also believe that it was ultimately pointed to Christ himself. Every true and actual point of scripture at some point is pointed to Jesus. I firmly believe that. You may 
may have to take a broader section. It may not be in this one chapter that's pointing to Jesus. It might take you a few chapters to begin to understand, especially if you're in some of the Old Testament narratives. There's some times that I'm beginning to wonder, I'm like, how does this point to Jesus? And then all of a sudden you keep reading and it becomes clear. This is all about Jesus. The same way it's true in this psalm is that Jesus himself was kept by the word of God. He says in verse 5, hold up my goings in thy paths that my footsteps slip not. I love a song that my grandfather used to frequently sing is, take my hand, precious Lord. Lead me on and let me stand. I learned a dependency on God from even hearing my grandfather singing that song and hearing other faithful people singing that song over the years is that that's exactly what we need. Now, granted, I think Thomas Dorsey was in talking about the end of life there. It seems to be from the flow of that song, but I also submit to you that's the way that we should live all of our lives is to asking God to take our hands, lead me on, and let me stand. It ought to be the prayer of each and every one of our hearts for surely we will slip if not for a, if on ourselves alone and if not for God. In verse 6 it says, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. Shew thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against thee. Truly, David is finally pointing us to. He's been pointing us that God has been keeping him. And notice the assurance that King David has. King David is never doubting in God. King David is knowing that God will do these things. I don't know about y'all. Sometimes I pray prayers that don't have the confidence of God in them. Sometimes I find myself in prayer and I don't have much confidence in God to do these things. Sometimes I'm asking him, and I've been asking him a long time about some things, and he just doesn't seem to do them, and I start to begin to doubt on him. It's just the way that I live my life. I don't know the way I live your life. That happens in my life. I begin to doubt him. Yet I find that if I pray long enough, if I spend enough time meditating on him, meditating on his word, meditating time in prayer, he begins to give me that same confidence that he gave King David. Somebody said, we said it last week, that it has been well noted over the years that prayer to the Christian ought to be as breathing is to the living. It surely ought to be that if we are to be living with God, that we should be praying to God. It says elsewhere in Scripture, or Paul records it, he says that we would be continuously in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians, it's mentioning that we would pray without ceasing, that we have a duty and a responsibility. And I submit to you that I can hear and I can know those just because I paid enough attention and somebody else taught me how to look for it, is I can tell when somebody's been spending time with God based on their prayers. Now, some people can fail. Don't get me wrong. It can be misleading. But if you're called on to pray, I wonder what are your prayers like? Are your prayers evident of somebody that has been spending time with God? I'll never forget it. I had a wonderful opportunity. I've mentioned it before. I got to go preach in the church on the side of 120, not 113, if anybody remembers the story. On the side of 120 Highway, and I'll never forget this man praying in that service. He was just praying at one of the parts of the service. It was actually a Methodist church, and he was praying at part of the service, and I could have just stopped in the rest of that service and just heard that brother pray for the rest of the service, and I would have been content because that brother had a special connection with God in that moment. That brother had an assurance in God that sometimes I am lacking. He had an assurance of God that I sometimes wanted to hear. Well, I would love to hear. I'm not saying she was a perfect woman, but my big mama, 
what I wouldn't give to be able to hear another prayer of hers. And somewhere there's a recording of it, and I've heard it before, where she was praying. And I've enjoyed just listening to that old tape, listening to her praying, because, beloved, when she prayed, she believed what she was praying. There was no doubt about it. It ought to be that there is confidence in our prayers. It is submitted to the dependence on God, but there is confidence in our prayers, confidence in what God is going to do, confidence that God, that those that put their trust in him are going to be saved from those that rise up against them, that any trouble, any difficulty we face in this world, God has got us, and it's going to be okay. I'll never forget my brother one day. I forget what it was, but brother, I've just held on to it ever since. Tyler just looked around and he said, God's got this. I don't even remember what it was anymore, bro. I don't even remember what it was, but I just remember he just looked and he said, God's got this. And I thought, well, I guess God really does got this. I, I guess it really does. I don't know why, but in that moment, it's exactly what I needed to hear. And it has stuck with me ever since that God's got that. God's got this. God's got that situation. God's got this situation. Every element of our lives, God has got this thing. And yet he is still calling on us to trust and depend on him. In verse 8, David is unrelenting in his prayer. He says, keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked that oppress me. From the deadly enemies who can pass me about. They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. We've been dealing with point A. And now we're getting into point B about the wicked. He's been talking about his life. Now he's talking about the life of the wicked. From the wicked that oppress me, from the deadly enemies that can pass me, who can pass me about. In verse 10, they are enclosed in their own fat with their mouth. They speak proudly. Verse 11, they have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth. Like as a lion that is greedy of his prey and as it were a young lion in lurking in secret places. That when King David is addressing the way that he's been living his life and then he begins addressing the way that the wicked are living their lives, King David is painting this picture for us that we are being surrounded. I was watching something the other day and I forgot what it was and he just said, I feel like the walls are closing in on me. i got to get out. He said, I feel like the walls are closing in on me. That's what it feels like when the enemy is coming against you. It seems like when it rains, it pours. I don't know if any of you have been through that. I know some of you are walking through that. I know that some of you just live a life that seems to be walking for that when it rains and pours. And that's the way that it seems to be, that the walls are closing in, the enemy is closing in, the enemy's coming about as a lion to seek and devour us. That's the way that King David is writing. He's got absolute confidence in God, but he's acknowledging the enemy seems to be yapping at my heels. The enemy seems to be at me. And I like uh, talked about Spurgeon earlier. Uh, he talked about some of the greatest enemies we, we find are within ourselves. That the greatest enemies we have trouble with, and I love there's something called ref tunes, which means reform tunes. And there's this artist that paints the pictures, and all he's done is painted miniature dogs with the face of Spurgeon on them, as if they were chasing him. And he's got that quote on it, just to give you that image of chasing of Spurgeon being chased by himself. I love that's every one of our stories. Now King David had real enemies. He had people that were seeking out him. Some of you probably do really truly have real enemies that are after your heels. Some of you are dealing with these things. But some, for some of us, and for most of us, to submit to you, it's those enemies that lie within that are seeking as lions. Did not God turn unto Cain and say that if thou doest well, you will be received? And he said, if not, sin lieth at the door. Another way to say that sin is crouching at the door. Another way that is the lion is crouching at the door. God addressed Cain, and he said, Cain, the problem is within yourself. Beloved, most often the problem is within ourselves. And this is what the problem is seeking. Look what he does in verse 15. He says, Arise, 
That's one of the best lines in all of the Psalms is when King David says, Arise. That he's got the confidence that when he talks to the Lord, that the Lord is going to do this. That he's going to arise, O Lord, and disappoint him. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. Okay. Depending on how you break this down, verse 13 makes a lot of sense until I get to the last four words. Up until the last four words, it's been, again, that structure of him dealing with the enemy, uh, of him dealing with himself, talking about himself, then talking about the enemy, then God dealing with the enemy. And again, we're about to get to God dealing with him, but here we are, God is dealing with the enemy. We think that God is going to tear down the enemy. We think that he is going to rise and destroy them utterly and have all of these things and cast them down, and surely God will do all of that. And surely King David is rooted in that assurance that he is going to cast them down and deliver his soul from the wicked. But then he refers to the wicked as the sword of the Lord. Does he not? He says, which is thy soul? There's no other words inserted in here. We're not talking about something else. King David is still talking about the wicked. And he's saying, which is thy sword? He's saying, God, the wicked is your sword. The wicked belongs to you. And if verse 13 doesn't communicate it well enough, look at verse 14. He says, from men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world, not of Jacob, not of Israel, but men of the world which have their portion in this life. I could go and think that it'd be okay. But then he adds on, he says, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure? And whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure? Does that mean that the wicked might be filled with the blessings of God? Does that mean that the wicked may be enjoying all of the blessings of God? Beloved, there are plenty of good Christian folk that enjoy the blessings of God. There's plenty of Christian folk that they don't visibly seem to be enjoying the blessings of the Lord. Yet I think internally some of them are. They're not blessed in worldly terms. But here I'm finding in Psalm 17 that God will even bless the wicked. But it's not the blessing that you might get. It's a different kind of blessing. He's filling them with his blessings. Surely if anybody wants to look upon their lives, you would look at them and say, God is greatly using them. God is greatly manifesting themselves. And sometimes we get into the what we would call the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You know, I grew up in a broken church that for the most part, I mean, there were some people that were pretty high income earners, but for the most part, it was a pretty a, a, a low to mid-level income. Families that were gathering week to week and they had a lot of problems and they had a lot of these other things and they had health problems and we didn't see the wealth gospel that much, but boy, oh, did we see the health gospel side of things. As we say the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that's what I saw so much of growing up is we expected God was going to fix all of our ailments. It never did seem to me that God was using our ailments in order to bring us closer to himself. No, that God was just going to wave a magic wand and give a magic pill and give a magic treatment, and he was going to do away with it. And that's the way that I heard somebody preaching the other day. He's like, just speak to it. Just speak to it, and it'll go away. If you'll just speak to it, it'll go away. Beloved, sometimes you may speak to your situation, and it may not get better, but that does not mean that God is not in charge. You may speak to a situation, and it get worse. You may speak about an enemy that you have, somebody physically, somebody that's been causing you grief, and all of a sudden it may seem like God is blessing them more. It may seem that God is filling them with his hid treasures. It may seem that they are full of children and that they leave the rest of their substance to their babes. Sometimes God will call somebody to prosper that doesn't even belong to you. But it doesn't mean that it's the problem. If all of our hopes and all of our dreams and aspirations are just on what we get in this world, 
And that's the fundamental problem with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That's the fundamental problem that I have sometimes when preachers will get up and say, just speak to it and speak to it. And I'm like, brother, I get what you're saying. I know where you're headed. You're just ending it disastrously. Is all I know how to say. I was listening to somebody who was doing such a good job, and his first three points were wonderful, and then he got to the fourth point, and he started talking about speaking to this and speaking to that. And I'm just like, brother, you just wrecked this plane. Everything was going smoothly. Everything you were saying was true. And then you just made it all about this present world. Not to say that there is not a present condition that we need to be living in. King David had purpose to live rightly in this passage. And these people that are his enemies are being blessed. But King David comes down to verse 15. I told you that structure, how he talks about himself, he talks about his enemies, how God deals with his enemies. And now in verse 15, he lands it in how God is going to deal with him. He says in verse 15, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake with thy wings. Psalm 16 was all about the resurrection at the end of the day. Can I tell you that Psalm 17 is still about the realities of the resurrection? That it is still about the present realities of the resurrection that you and I, when we find ourselves with God in eternity, we will be made like him. We know from 1 John, I believe it's in chapter 3 over there, that he says, we don't know yet what we shall be, but we know this, that we shall be like him. That is the assurance. That is the hope that we have. King David didn't know all of these things. King David didn't know everything about Jesus, and yet he knows that he is going to wake and he is going to find himself in the likeness of Christ. In Psalm 16, he delivers the promise and the assurance that his pleasure are forevermore, that he is the path of life, that he is going to be resurrected. He knows all of these things that God is going to carry him to be with him. And if that were the end of it, it would be good. But it is not the end of it. The end of our reality is that we spend eternity with God in his likeness. In Genesis, it's an interesting thing that God made man in our image, is what he says, in the image of the Godhead, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, we know that that is the image that man has been made in. And yet we know from Genesis chapter 3 that corruption has entered into the world and that this image has been marred. And that it's like if somebody had on a full face of makeup and all of a sudden it's running, I'm thinking of the makeup the ladies apply, I'm thinking of the makeup that a clown applies. And all of a sudden it's gotten hot and it's melting everything off the face. That's the kind of image bearers that we are. It's melted and it's not right because in Genesis chapter 5 it talks about the lineage of Adam. And it talks in the, in the lineage of Adam, it says that in his likeness was Seth born. It doesn't say in the image of God, though we know he's still an offspring, he's still a bearer of the image of God. As marred as it may be, even Seth is an image bearer of God, but his likeness is that of Adam. That he is more closely associated with Adam than what he is with Christ, than what he is with God. Beloved, the problem with our marred image is we look more like the rest of the world. But the hope that we have is that we're going to look like him. Beloved, that must be true of us in our lives now. We ought to day in and day out be looking more and more like Jesus. That ought to be true about us. But we're not going to reach that final perfection until the other side. But we know this, and we have the confidence that in that day we're going to look like him. The rest of the world may be blessed. The rest of the world may actually look like they're more than the right than what we are. And yet we know that at the end of it all, we shall be like him. And that's the day that we're looking forward to. 
For an unbeliever, they don't know this. They don't know what it is to look like the image of God. Would you show them the image of God? Would you show them what the image of God looks like? Would your life be matching and conforming with the Word of God so much and the will of God so much that when somebody that is an unbeliever looks on your life, would they see that they need to be conformed to that image? Believer, do you know that you need to be reconformed to that image? Do you know that there are times that as King David, King David's doing well in, in, in Psalm 17, the first part of it. He's doing really well. He's really living for God. But we know that King David messed up at points in his life too. We know that he's asking to be the apple of the eye of the Lord. And sure, at times that refers to David as even the apple of the Lord. We know the way that David dwelt with the Lord. And yet he still messed up. There are times that we need to be reminded that we're supposed to be in the image of Christ. That he is making us in the likeness of his image. Beloved, we come down to the church. It's our responsibility to be instructing others on how to be conformed to the image of Christ. We have the duty and the responsibility of discipleship. We have the duty that we read every single week that we come together and we read the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We read it every single week because it is evangelical in nature and it is disciplical in nature. I don't think that's a word, but I just made it up for this morning on the purpose of this illustration. It's disciplical in nature. It makes disciples is what it does. It talks to others about Jesus. It communicates the truth of the word of God. But then it takes them under their wing, even as King David is asking God to take him under his wing, to David to enter under the wing of God. That's what we're doing with others. That's the responsibility of the church. He has left us here to be used in other people's lives so that they may be conformed to the likeness of Christ. We should be the barometers of those truths, helping somebody along. That when they mess up, do you know what we do? We just love them. We bring them back into the fold. Now, we don't let sin go unchecked. That's not what it's about. But when somebody has messed up and they repent of the sin and they come back to the church, we need to take them back in. Sometimes the church just writes them off as if it's not. It's interesting. In the last conference, we adopted language about what we're going to do with membership and just walk away. And, beloved, all that I know to do when somebody just walks away is to just let them walk away. There's not much else we can do. We're going to go to them. We're going to try to keep them from going away. We're going to contact them. We're going to do things in order to reach out to them. We're not just letting them go. But, beloved, there's only so far that you can go. When somebody just walks away, there's a point that comes that you can't do anything else about it. They're gone. We can't do anything else with them until they come back. But, beloved, let us not be so harsh and be like, you walked away, you're never welcome back. Oh, no, beloved. If somebody were to walk away for a season but then wants to come back and then finds themselves repentant before God and is trying to come back into the fold, we always let them back in. Jesus is always searching for the lost sheep. He's always welcoming them back into the fold. He's always caring for the wholeness of the flock. We welcome them back in is what we should be doing. For, beloved, all of us need each other. None of us are able to walk this perfectly by ourselves. We must live intentionally and dependently on God, knowing that he is conforming us to the likeness of Christ in us. It's an us thing, not just a you thing or just a me thing. It's an us thing. And praise God, one day we shall perfectly be like him in that day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth of your word. We pray that you again, that you, Lord, would engraft it into us that it will bring forth fruit in this new season of life. Lord, we're thankful that We've ever been able to pray like King David, oh God. We can certainly pray with him that you will rule over the enemies, that you will triumph, that God, though they may seem to succeed in this world, that God, that's where their hope ends, but that our hope continues in you for all of eternity. We pray to rest in you, to rest that one day we shall awake and we shall rest.